Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Alien vs. Predator Galaxy podcast. And I'm your usual host, Aaron Percival. And joining me today is a special guest. Most of you will be familiar with her. She's been in a, a film that we're reasonably fond of. So we uh, just want to welcome Cynthia Scott to the uh, podcast. Thank you for joining us. Hello. Thank you, Aaron. Hello, UK. And um, so we're going to be talking, obviously, aliens with a little bit of other stuff in there. So, you know, first off, I'd just like to say thank you for taking the time out of your day and come to chat to, um, you know, a nerd on the internet. Oh, it's my pleasure. I'm we sure love nerds. Yes, exactly. But before we do start talking aliens, then, I was hoping you'd just give us, um, give our listeners a little background on yourself and what you've been up to since appearing in Aliens, because I don't think you pursued acting, did you, after this? I did a little bit. I, I was actually, you probably know that the majority of the space troopers were living in the UK when we were cast. Mm -hmm. We were English residents, London residents, and several of us did move to L.A. after the film came out. Unfortunately, after we'd been there for not very long, the Writers Guild went out on strike, and they were on strike for a full year. And no one worked for a year unless they were going to scab, and nobody wanted to do that. And I wasn't yet a SAG member. I made aliens on a British equity contract. And I knew I wanted to join SAG, and I'm a big union supporter, so I wasn't going to cross a picket line either. So everybody was out of work for a year. And I felt that it kicked me off the ladder. I'd been reading for some pretty good parts, and I found that all the actresses that had been wrong or two above me on the ladder who wouldn't have been reading for the same parts suddenly had been out of work for a year not paying their mortgages or paying them out of their sal their savings and so they all got kicked down a notch or two and it sort of booted me off the ladder and I, it was just very frustrating i i had agent problems you really can't get very far unless you have an agent in la and some of them left the business some of them when I first got an agency, um, it was a two-person agency, and one of the couple, um, one of the agents was my agent, and we were perfectly in sync with how my career should go. And I returned to the UK, packed my stuff, shipped it over, and it took a couple months. And by the time I got back, he'd been, he'd left the agency, and I was stuck with his partner, and she um, was, she tried to put me in a box a very tight box because I had short hair and I was still pretty buff from training for the movie mm. she started sending me out for all the lesbian parts and this is no disparagement of lesbians I have dear friends who are lesbians but I am not one and I would walk into a casting director's office to read for the part and they would laugh at me and say you, you have to get a different agent <laughs> you know, <laughs> you're not fitting this mold very well and I booked you know I booked a couple of parts but the the strike was really hurt us all and I mean I, I was in favor of the you know I'm always in favor of a fellow union um, but it did hurt everybody and and then you know the remaining agent and I just didn't say eye to eye so I left her and I just it was a series of agent problems and that made it very difficult right. and I, I realized at a certain point that what I was being allowed to read for were these tiny like may I show you to your seat sir parts and mm -hmm. they say there are no small parts only small actors but I, I just said to myself, this is not why I got into the business. I, you know, this is not very creative. I, I actually had a degree in fine art. I was a, I had a Bachelor of Fine Arts in Sculpture from Rhode Island School of Design, which is a very prestigious art college in the, in the U.S. And I thought, you know, I'd rather, you know, all of my creative input it is, in, is in someone else's hands. I need permission just to be able to go 
audition for something, let alone get a part. And just sitting in my room doing monologues doesn't cut it creatively. I'd, I'd rather go back to something that I'm in control of my own creative output. So I actually went back to art college in, in California, in LA, and I retrained as a textile designer. And that brought me to New Orleans. I, I worked as a textile designer for a time in New Orleans and got back into my sculpture. And now I'm a visual artist. I, I show frequently. I have a piece in the New Orleans Museum of Art permanent collection. I have a nice. solo show up right now. And I have another piece about to open it at the Contemporary Art Center this coming Saturday. And I show around the country. So um, I feel very creatively satisfied right now. Oh, good. Good. So it's taking the creativity back into your own hands then. Yes. I'm also a one day a week radio announcer for National Public Radio, our local NPR mm. affiliate in New Orleans. So that's a little bit of not quite on camera work, but <laughs> it's on my work. Mm. Well, that sounds awesome. Uh, on, to, on to the topic of, of aliens then. Were you familiar with Ridley Scott's Alien prior to actually working on Aliens? I was familiar with it. And we were asked the question at the panel on Saturday and I nobody could I mean we couldn't remember whether we'd seen Ridley Scott's Alien before we shot Aliens or not I think we all did see it but I don't remember at what point of the process that occurred but I did know of it okay I'm in general this might shock your audience but I'm not a fan of scary movies Hmm. well to be fair you know I was just I was just watching Aliens again and Jim was saying on the commentary how he didn't think of aliens as a scary movie that's true yeah it's very much a it's a it's a buddy picture it's an ensemble piece it's a mother and daughter tribute it's many things thriller action yeah yeah and so still on the early days of you know involvement with the film then can you remember how you learned about the casting opportunity i remember distinctly because i didn't have an agent in london i was acting but sort of fringe stuff and I was in an actor's group. They have these, I don't know if they still do, but they had these things called breakdown chains. The breakdowns are the descriptions of all the parts that are casting any particular week. And those are sent directly to the agents. So if you're in an agency, they select their, the members of, of their stable who fit the parts and send them up for the parts. But um, people who worked in the agencies would obtain the breakdowns and they would photocopy them and, and you would pay a subscription fee and they would distribute them to all of, you know, the number of people that were in each group, each mm-hmm. breakdown chain. So I was in a breakdown chain and I think Jeanette was as well in a, with another group. And we read about parts and we sent our own picture and resume to the casting director and we were called in from that. We self-submitted. Okay, that's interesting. Talking about your casting experience then for Aliens, after you'd sent it in, um, I believe you originally auditioned for the role of Vasquez. Do you remember much about the audition? I, I, yes, I do remember it. Well, um, I think everybody read for major parts, mainly because um, the full script wasn't fleshed out yet. So he had, he had the, the, the bear, you know, the skeleton drawn out, the, the major roles that he wanted to um, pin the, all the proceedings around, but they were the most fully completed parts. Right. And um, it was, they could get a better idea of what we could do by let, having us read a, a longer section. Okay. And I do remember, I, I can't remember, um, actually, I, 
I had, a, of course, a reading, and then I, I had a reading. With, I, I guess I don't remember the reading in front of the casting director, but I do remember when I, the callback, which was in front of Jim and Gail. And I, um, I'd done the preliminary audition with the casting director. And I was living in a licensed squat in Clapham, in a shared house with other people and I remember my flatmate knocking at my bedroom door and I opened it he had to his shocked face in a big thick envelope and he said motorcycle messenger just dropped us off you from 20th century fox he didn't know I was auditioning and I said oh yes that's that's my script thank you it was my sides it was the, the section that I was going to audition with and I I read that you know the character description was that she was heavily muscled you know it was as, as you know competitive bodybuilder mm -hmm. heavily muscled masculine woman and I um I remember I I went to the gym and pumped iron like mad and I rode my push bike up to the to the reading through Trafalgar Square in the midday traffic, very aggressively. I remember riding around, you know, I dare you to hit me down, you know, double-decker buses, <laughs> just, just building my aggression and my, you know, my machismo. And, uh, and I sort of pumped up, you know, like, got squared my shoulders to go into the audition and read very aggressively that um, before Jim and Gail. And it did the, uh, did the job apparently. It did the job. Yes. And it actually initially I was cast as Pharaoh, the dropship pilot, and he switched me to, to Dietrich because as he was developing these characters all along, they were, they were growing as, as the weeks went on. And when he called me back after the, um, after I was, well, I guess he called me in for the, for the actual, hiring interview and he said i know you were cast as pharaoh but i'm switching you to dietrich and it's actually a bigger part you you have a lot more weeks of filming and you're the medical tech officer and you know he sort of dangled it in front of me that way and i, I didn't you know i'll be the dog catcher i you know like just <laughs> give me a job this is great so i did i said oh that's great that's fine i don't care that's fine and uh, he said there was one proviso, though, and he gave Mark Rolston the same proviso. He said, I want you to train with a trainer that we will hire for you. I want you to come out to Pinewood Studios five days a week and train with this guy very, very hard. And we'll provide all your, you know, clothing and equipment, but we can't pay you for your time. Right. And of course, Mark and I agreed to that. And he had a car. I did not. So I would, I lived in Clapham and I would take the tube to Acton, I think, where he lived. And, um, and we'd drive out to Pinewood together and train like the bejeebers. It was just this guy. It was, it was the stuntman who populated the power loader. He was actually in the power loader mm -hmm. during the shooting. And Sigourney was standing on his feet, all six foot, whatever of her, standing on his feet. And he was moving the power loader with her in it. So he's this big, huge Yorkshireman. And, and he really pushed us hard. And the, the first day, the second day, I mean, the, when I woke up after our first day of training, I was sitting at the breakfast table with my flatmates and I'm all slumped over and everything hurt. I like muscles and tendons. I had no idea that I possessed. Everything was hurting. And I said to my flatmates, I can't go back there. They're killing me. And they said, shut up, think of the money and get back out there. And I did. And in, in addition to um, pumping iron with this wonderful guy, John, um, we also had to take these awful bodybuilder supplements. They were like ex extract of spleen and God knows oh. what. They were terrible. They tasted awful. And I just thought, what is this doing to me? But I guess it was putting on muscle and bulk. I certainly bulked up. 
they at least give you nice flavors like that now everything's chocolate and strawberry well that's how it should have been (laughs) so it's pretty well known that prior to filming you know um jim cameron had the cast playing all the cloning marines do uh, military training as well as you know the the physical stuff to help prepare for the film what is your most vivid memory of, um, of that preparation of that time? I have two. One was um, we had training with every single weapon that was used on set, with the exception of the smart guns. So each one of us had to learn to fire a live pistol, a live flamethrower, and a live pulse rifle, you know, sort of automatic rifle. And we had to, I remember we had to run, fall on our stomachs on some sort of sandbag and, and fire. And right. that was pretty dramatic because I'm a non-gun person and like Sigourney. I'd never touched one in my life so it was actually kind of thrilling I was you know I used to, it was like being paid to be army man <laughs> as a game and the, the second vivid memory is that you probably know that we had two cast members training us we had Tip Tipping who was the British stuntman who had a non-speaking role as one of the space troopers he played yeah, it was Crow. Crow. yeah. and um, he was a former SAS person and he gave us the benefit of his training. And then um, Al Matthews was a former, I think a Vietnam veteran. Certainly he was a former army sergeant, I believe. And mm-hmm. he gave us training as well. So we had the real deal. I mean, as, as Rico called it the other day, he called it actor boot camp. Not, you know, but we, we had a pretty heavy, significant amount of training. And um, we had a rule that if you're ever caught pointing your weapon at anyone's face, you know, by accident, you have to fall to the ground and do 10 push-ups. And I cannot do one push-up or couldn't at the time. <laughs> I still can't. And I mean, a full army push-up. And, and so I just made absolutely sure that I never, you know, my weapon was always pointed down unless I was being addressed to, you know, directed to do something different. But Rico Ross was very casual with his and he kept getting called out and he would show off by doing one arm push-ups. <laughs> So you had the good gun discipline. I did. Yeah. Was was the flamethrower fun? I think that was the one you made. It was use, wasn't great. It? That was my weapon in in the film. It was really really fun. And they had full time firemen on set at all times <laughs> you know, when I when I was around. Did you ever cause any fires there? I didn't, but there was a fire. I can't remember which part of the set caught on fire at one point, but the firemen earned their money that day. <laughs> And that was not caused by me, by the way. <laughs> Good. So in terms of still the preparation, you know, it's, again, it's a, it's a pretty well-known story that you guys were all asked to customize your costume, your armor, your camo, whatever. You had Kiss My and some lips on your backside, if I remember rightly, and the red cross on your shirt. So uh, I was wondering if there was any other additional customization we didn't catch on camera and sort of what well, you're thinking behind it was. Yes, the red cross actually was... Um, a logo I designed for myself because I was the medical tech officer and I also wanted to make the point that, um, you know, I'm one of the women of the future who need men, you know, who needs, who needs them? They just break your heart. So I designed a, um, a logo that was a red cross with a drop of blood coming off of it. And that was over my heart on my t-shirt. And then I, I used that also, we, we were allowed to customize our own tattoos, design our own tattoos. And we had, fake tattoos painted on us this was in the days prior to everybody having tattoos which i still have none but um they're so common now i mean secretaries have them nursery school teachers have them but um at the time they were not popular and so we but in you know 
enlisted men often had them. So the Red Cross with the drop of blood was my tattoo on my arm as well. I read on a fan site that um, I was wondering if, if anyone would pick this up. It was kind of a little um, tip of the hat to film fans. Um, on the back of my helmet, I wrote the Blue Angel. And anyone who's a real film buff will recognize that an early black and white film by Josef von Sternberg with Marlene Dietrich was uh, uh, The Blue Angel. And my, my name was Dietrich. So I stuck that in there just thinking, okay, let's see how savvy people are. If anybody even sees it, you know, I didn't know what angles would be shot of me. And some bright spark did catch it and put it on a, a fan site. So I guess Dietrich's really, really into really old films. Yes, she is. <laughs> but I didn't remember that about the, the lips on the bum. And until I read your question, and you know, that you sent to me, um, I didn't remember doing that. So that's pretty funny. Yeah, I, there's some, there's some um, like continuity photos and stuff like that. So it's easy to get a look at everybody's costumes outside of the film. Uh, the Blue Angel thing, I don't think I've, never no I've ever noticed that. Okay, you can look for that now. But I have to mm. tell you something about those trousers. We had custom fit uniforms. And those are the best fitting pair of trousers I've ever had in my entire life. <laughs> and I wanted, I wanted to steal them and I didn't have the nerve because they made several different pair, of course. Um, but I just didn't, I wasn't that gutsy. I did, however, steal my skivvies. I think we we're allowed to keep those. So <laughs> the underwear that we wore in the, in the hypersleep scene. So are they your only souvenirs from, uh, from the set? Well, I have my dog tags somewhere, although the last time I looked for them, I couldn't find them. Oh, no. Um, I have a few things. I also, I, I made a, a bandage for my, for my hand. Um, I had taken, the, actually, I had taken a course that a lot of actors take. It's one of those self-actualization type Estian sort of courses. And to help actors jumpstart their careers, it's called Samurai. And right. I was in a Samurai group. And that's how I found out about the breakdown group, which led to my getting aliens. And I had heard or read somewhere that Sigourney had done the same training in the States. And so it was sort of a little bond between us. And, and I, I took a Japanese symbol, uh, some Japanese characters and, a, and a, a rising sun, and I painted them on a bandage. And I, and I wrapped that around my hand or my wrist, you know, because I was a tough Marine and I had, you know, probably wounded myself at some point and I was still wearing the bandage. And speaking of continuity, I had a panic one day when I, um, I'd gone to the loo and I came back and I started shooting and I realized I put the bandage on the wrong hand and I was panic stricken and I ran up to the, to the script supervisor and said, oh no, no, oh no, I've got it on the wrong hand. Oh. And she said, don't even worry about it. <laughs> like, nobody's going to notice too much going on. That stuff gets picked apart now. It does. Now I've given the secrets. <laughs> you, you've actually previously mentioned that your time on the film was split with a, uh, with a break in the middle. Yes. So I was curious about some of, you know, when, what was filmed. I think the assault on the hive was first and then the scenes on the Sulaco were the end. Is that right? Do you know, I cannot remember. I, I read that's, I, I have pretty clear memories of everything, but I, I can't remember the sequence of things because I did have quite a long break. I think I shot like eight or 10 weeks on and then almost a month off and then eight or 10 more weeks. And during the nighttime off, I, I'm, I was a singer songwriter in London at the time and I had teamed up with a partner. Um, I actually did, 
I've released a couple of singles in the UK when they used to have EPs and they right. were playing them on turntables. <laughs> For all of you young people out there, just look it up, ask your parents. And I, I didn't have a band, so I was, I was interviewing, um, I was interviewing with a lot of people. I, I had a couple of singles were already released, and so there was a bit of. And I'd been written about in the enemy and the Melly Maker and stuff, and there was a little buzz about me, but not enough to get me another deal right away. So I was shopping around and talking to agents and A and R guys, and also trying to meet. Uh, well, at, at one of the A and R guys said, "Look, you've got a great voice. I like the songs that you write, but they're sort of all over the place genre-wise. And what you need is to find the Dave Stewart to your Annie Lennox. You need a writing partner." So I started um, getting, you know, looking through the music press and the back ads and, uh, and interviewing with people. And I had found a songwriting partner. He wrote really great tunes and, and I wrote lyrics and we would swap. And, and I said, look, I'm, I've got this break coming up. So I'm going to send you some stuff and you send me some stuff and we'll work on each other's stuff. And then we'll get together in the break and we'll record. And so I was really focused on that. And uh, also I had to keep training because I had to stay mm. buff. So I was going to, I lived in Clapham. I was going to the public gym in Brixton and I'll never forget, you know, and I had to keep my hair really short and I, I'm standing on the street corner waiting for the light to change. And this, this lovely gentleman, older gentleman turns to me and says, girl, why are you wear your hair so short? <laughs> and I said, um, oh, well, I'm in a movie and I have to wear it like this. But, you know, I used to love that West Indian accent. I used to love hanging out in Brixton when I had the market. Last time I was there, the market was almost gone. There were hardly any stalls populated anymore. It broke my heart. But I used to really like Brixton. So that's a bit of a drastic, um, you know, from shooting guns and blowing up aliens to singing in the middle and doing your your music that's <laughs> nice contrast yes yeah well I don't I mean I've always done many things as I say I have a, a degree in um, visual art and I, I was always I was always in a band I was always um, from high school on secondary school right through college and in fact when I was at Rhode Island School of Design I was in a band with the, the drummer of Talking Heads he was um, a bit ahead of me in school but um, we had you know you form bands with the people that you want to play with and so I was in a band with him and Tina Weymouth, the bass player, would hang out at our, at our rehearsals because she was, she was after him. They weren't boyfriend and girlfriend at the time, but she was definitely trying to get him on her side. <laughs> and that was really fun. And I, I went to see them later on in London after they became Talking Heads. They were playing at some small venue, some club up in North London and uh, Camden Town. And, and I, went, I cycled up from Clapham to see them and went backstage and saw them. I met David Byrne and had a chat. It was really nice to see them again. But I don't see, you know, it's all creative output. I, and I, everybody, almost every creative person I know does more than one thing. You know, Lance Armstrong, I mean, Lance Armstrong, Lance <laughs> <laughs> Henriksen um, showed us when we were together um, Last summer in, in Tennessee, we were at a con together and we, we were all, we love to hang out still. We love each other as a group. And, and he was showing these beautiful pictures of wooden bowls that he makes now. He does these beautiful artisanal carved wooden bowls and he has a whole website with them. And every, everybody does something as, you know, creative on the side. Mm, more than one outlet. Absolutely. Yeah. Cool. Hey, your your character is actually the first to get hands on with an alien in the film that's absolutely true and you're grabbed yeah. behind and taken up into the depths of the hive so i was hoping you could just tell us a little bit about filming that because i believe you actually performed part of your stunt yourself i did and it was it was so much fun and in fact one of the questions that always kind of shocks me when i'm at the cons um 
every now and again, people will say, were you scared when the alien grabbed you? And I said, it's my buddy, the stunt man. We're doing this, you know, we have to go over the stunt a whole bunch of times, you know, we're, we're cracking jokes with each other. It's really hard to be scared. You know, <laughs> I, I'm an actress, by the way. <laughs> I can pretend I'm scared. Um, but it was a very dramatic stunt. I'm sure they don't have anything like this anymore. It seems like it's from the Middle Ages, but it's called a teeterboard and it's a gigantic seesaw. And also, you know, I don't know what you call them in the UK, we, we used to call them teeter-totters when I was a kid. Seesaw's um, pretty much it. Seesaw, yeah. yes. It's a, it's a big plank on a fulcrum, but it was ex- the, end, the, the end that's sticking up is extremely high. It's like six feet off the ground. And I was standing on the end that was on the ground, obviously, and the stuntman had to land behind me and grab me across my chest. I ha- and, and, and we had crew guys on the tall end pulling it down physically with their strength <laughs> pulling it down catapult you know changing our angle of footage and our you know immediately raising us up in the air and so simultaneously we have to shift our footing keep our weight steady so we don't fall off and and he's got me grabbed across the chest i'm holding a flamethrower which i have to angled downward because I'm going to be firing it at frost and and I have to react at the same time and it was very intricate and especially getting the balance right and about the first three or four times we did it I fell off (laughs) and I'm getting I mean there were many bumps and bruises on that on that set on on my part for different reasons but um it was a very physical and very actually exciting stunt to do and I begged them to let me do the second half which was going up on a wire and they said we didn't we didn't get enough insurance to do that (laughs) and they used a woman that's quite a bit shorter than I am but you can't tell because you're just seeing her go you're seeing her backside and her kicking legs go up in the air movie magic I hope they they remembered to paint on her bum (laughs) Uh, did you have much interaction with daily performers then? I think only, only I did. I, I'm, I think I'm the only one who touched them because I, I can't remember how close Sigourney and, and Newt got it. They were close, but I don't know if they were being touched by them. I was grabbed by him mm. multiple times. And um, so he was really the only one I met other than, um, the guy who trained us, who was in the power loader. All right. But I did, I, I hung out a lot with the um, special effects guys because I'm sure you all know that a large part of filming, especially if you're not one of the leads, is sitting around. And we'd get there at the, you know, before dawn, get in makeup. And in Jeanette's case, that was a lot of makeup because you probably also know that she's not a Latina. <laughs> she has very fair skin and freckles and light blue-gray eyes and auburn hair. So she had to have lots of makeup and, and contact lenses to get into her part. But we had our makeup and our costumes and full suits of armor, which we, and we had to get fully suited up and sit there, even if we and it might not be used that day. So there's, you know, we used to entertain ourselves. We devised games that we played with each other. And, but I would sneak off and I'd always tell them, you know, where I was, but I'd sneak off and I'd go into the different um, special effects departments and there were, there were at least three. And I'd go into the costume department and I'd go into the creature effects and watch the sculptors making the, all the things that they pasted on the, the aliens. And everything that you see on the set exists in real life. There's no CG. Mm. So all of that incrustation that goes on the walls, that's all fiberglass and resin. And, and they were making all of that stuff. And of course, as a sculptor, what could be more interesting? 
And I also was interested in, in costume design. So I, I watched them sort of cutting, sewing costumes and stuff. I mean, making extra sets because obviously we already had our costumes that we were wearing. Yeah. But I, I just loved the whole fascination that went behind the scenes. Well, that's half the fun of learning about these films as well. Yes, you know, exactly. The, the documentaries on the on the box sets are <laughs> like twice as long as some of the films. I bet they are, yeah. Mm, I and I, I remember thinking, well, you know, if this acting thing doesn't work out, maybe I'll be a, a sculptor for creature effects something to pursue as well at some point maybe i've got a full career now though (laughs) i think i read or you might have mentioned at one of the events before as well that um the the guy behind you in the alien suit was um a bit lewd with you oh man i don't remember that I mean, I wouldn't be, I wouldn't doubt it. I did, I, I know that um, all the guys in the crew evidently had, not a wager, but they, they were sort of voting as to who had the best bum, Sigourney or me. And of course, those, <laughs> trousers, those trousers were cut to fit. So I don't know how the final tally came out. I didn't, I didn't dare ask. <laughs> We're going to have to try and find out about that I one then. Yes, I'm flattered. I don't know. Okay, guys, just talk amongst yourselves, please. Ah, <laughs> oh, brilliant. It's fairly well known that there was some degree of onset tension due to the culture clash between the British and the Americans um, with walkouts happening as well. I was wondering if you ever found yourself caught up in that tension. Actually, the tension was not between British and Americans because most of us in the cast, I'd say more than half of us, were already living in Britain and we were British Union members ourselves. Um, and we understood fully what the rules were. The tension was solely between the crew and Jim because the way movies are made in Hollywood are you keep going until you're done. You keep going until you've got the shot. You keep going until you lose the light. Whatever it takes, you you keep going until you're done. And it's just a completely different style. I'm not going to criticize him or the British system. We were part of the British system. And so I think um, we fully understood that it was mandated. It is a rule. It's union rules that you break at X hours. You have tea and you, you know, have a bathroom break, whatever. And that's just the way it is. That's the way things are done. And you gear yourself around that. And Jim was used to being an absolute monarch, you know, because that's what movie directors are in, in the States. Uh-huh. And, and he couldn't, he, he was very young. I mean, he was barely thir- in his 30s. And, and this was his big chance. I mean, he, he told us that he made the Terminator to convince 20th Century Fox that he was capable of doing the sequel to the Terminator. I mean, the sequel to the, to the alien, that was his whole goal. That's why he made the Terminator. And um, so he was still a young director and, and uh, probably had a little short fuse and, and he blew up and, and fired the, the DP, the first, the first AD, Derek. And we all loved Derek. So the, the friction was not between English and Americans by any stretch. It was, it was simply I'd say a management shop floor problem and um, bless Sigourney. She, um, you know, actors don't usually do this. It's very rare, but she knew that she was the only one with the power to have a voice and she brokered a piece and um, Derek was rehired and he was an excellent DP. I mean, AD and things went on. But I remember Jim saying at one point, he said, I have nightmares of arms extending towards me, holding a tray of tea. <laughs> I mean, I felt for him because I, 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 you know, I, I knew of the system he'd come from and I knew it was just a culture clash. Um, and, and I think they liked each other personally. It was just, you know, Derek had to stand up for the rules. That was his job. 
and and as far as Jim was concerned, is how dare you? You know, I'm 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 the director. I'm the absolute power here. So, but it was it was amicably resolved, and we went on. And there was, you know, I think at the end of the day, everyone was pleased and proud to be a part of it, and and probably every there were handshakes all around and hugs at the premiere. And a wonderful film came out of it all as well. Absolutely. So you you personally weren't that caught up in any of that clashing then you were you were pretty far i was on set it was very tense i mean everybody sort of froze what's going to happen it's like a, a standoff because if if derek is fired the rest of the crew are walking off and uh it was very touch and go it was very tense but sigourney deserves full marks for saving that situation i would say Okay. Something I find really interesting is something that Rico said in an interview before. I'm paraphrasing here because I can't remember the exact words that he used. But he said something along the lines of that he thought Bill Paxton was completely hamming it up while filming and it would come across as terrible. And I thought was that actually, too. Oh, well, I was going to say, you know, we were surprised at how well it actually worked. Yep. So were there many moments like that on Aliens where you were surprised at how the finished product came out compared to, you know, what you saw and experienced while filming? Yes, I was surprised. I mean, please forgive me, Michael, because I, I love you to death. But I was surprised at Michael's choice, probably just because we'd been working with James Remar and he was a totally different type. He was shorter and stockier and he had a really deep voice and he had played a villains in films. And, and so he had that gravitas of, of mean guy and we were kind of afraid of him. And then Michael came on set, he's tall, blonde, gorgeous and very soft spoken. And I, I just felt that his line readings, you know, were soft to be the male lead. And now when I watch it, I see how beautifully it works because he is strong in himself and he doesn't need to shout or lower his voice or be gruff. And, and it also, and he wasn't threatened by Ripley, which is really important. Like mm-hmm. she, you know, when she showed him that she could, yes, exactly. When she showed him that she could use the weaponry and, and he goes, oh, we're all right, you know, and, and the, the softness really worked. But I remember at the time of filming, I was fil- filming, I was wondering like, Really? Is this, how's this going to read? I don't know. But it came out nicely. Fair enough. I, I, really I love that kind of thing. Speaking yeah. of James, though, um, James Remar, do you remember much of what you filmed with him? I, I assume it's mostly The Hive. I, I remember uh, we did a lot of training with him, actually. I mean, I think he was in a, on the training because he was one of the, the squad leaders. Mm-hmm. You know, there were A and B squads when we deployed. So we had to go through that, I believe, with him. And then... Um, a bit of filming. I'm trying to remember. I think it was, yes, it was. The, it would have been the deployment scenes. It would have been moving into the colony um, in the pouring rain, which was the most miserable day on earth because we were shooting at Pinewood in the winter and the sets were so large. They stuck out the side. I mean, they had to keep the doors open, the side doors, and they were sort of extending out. And it was freezing cold. And we, um, the, the makeup people kept coming up and slathering this gel on us to make us look like we're sweating, but we're, we're dying of the cold. And, um, and I'll never forget shooting those scenes. Um, you know, you get into your place ready for deployment and then you hit your marks and, and um, well, actually before you hit your marks, Jim would yell, cue rain. And it starts pouring with rain. I mean, they're using, there are sprinklers in, in the ceiling and it's pouring, you are getting wet. And then, you, and then it's cue wind and these gigantic fans turn on and blow the rain against you even more. And we did multiple takes and I, I remember just dreading that. 
and, and we got a break, the assistants would run up and wrap us in, in space blankets, you know, those silver space the, yeah, blankets. Yeah, the foil ones. To keep you warm. And I called that the day of the giant baked potatoes. <laughs> That's the first day I injured myself because um, my direction was to run in, fall to my mark, fall on my knee and get ready to fire. Well, we had these articulated knee armor bits and it would, the way it was hinged, it just would fall, it would, when I'm about to take a knee, it, it would fall in such a way that it cut right in the center of my kneecap. And I would fall right on this edge every time. And it became agonizing to the point where I was afraid I couldn't run anymore. And it really hurt. And I started crying. And I was terrified. <laughs> Jim would see me crying. Because, I mean, Jim was such a stickler. Even in the table read at the very beginning before we even started shooting, when we're coming in and reading in our street clothes, I was sitting next to Jim and he turned to me and he said, you have lip gloss on. And I said, yeah, Jim. And he said, Marines don't wear lip gloss. So I thought, well, if I can't wear lip gloss at a table read, what's he gonna say about Marina's crying while she's deploying? And fortunately, he never saw me doing that. But I think I did mention to first aid that I, I had a problem. I don't remember how it was re rectified. I think maybe they gave me a little bandage to slip under the kneecap um, piece of armor. But th that, was, that was very painful. Yeah, I bet. Was, was there any additional footage of you that never ended up in the film? Oh, you're on my favorite topic and my heartbreak. Um, there's a lot. There's quite a lot. There, it, we spent an entire day of nothing but close-ups of me. Um, it's the day, almost nothing but that. Um, it was the day I discovered, you know, when I, we found the cocooned woman. And as the medical tech officer, I'm, I, I'm the one who finds her, but I'm also the one who feels that I can help her because I have medical training. And the entire day, it was shot from... On, on screen, you, all you see is my back, but, but the, most of the shooting was of me up close. And Jim was giving me a lot of um, off the cuff direction. He was coming up with ideas on the fly and saying, do this, do that, do this. And he, would, and he was yelling at me a lot too. He'd say, no, not like that, do it like this. <laughs> and, and I'd say, okay, oh, you don't want me to do it that way? Okay, I'll do it this way. And, I, and it, that went on for a long time. And we took a break and two of the firemen came up to me and they said, I can't believe how calm you are. We just found out this is your first film and he's just yelling at you and, and you're just so calm and you're taking it so well. And, and I said, oh, you know, just reminds me of my dad, <laughs> which probably says more than I should say about my dad, but my dad's a dear person too, but they, they both have their limits and under tension, things come out. And, but the thing I love about Jim is that um, the next day he'll come up to you and he'll crack a joke and kind of poke you in the ribs. And, and that's his way of saying, hey, no hard feelings. It was just in the moment. But anyway, I'm all excited. I'm doing all these things and, and reacting and doing the things he wants me to do. And at one point he says, oh, I know. Try to break her out of the cocoon. I said, oh, okay. So the next take, I start ripping apart a cocoon that is made of resin and fiberglass. And it's breaking, you know, breaking into very sharp shards. Mm -hmm. and 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 then he says okay let's go again and the the art department starts freaking out like <laughs> wow you know like we have to glue it back together you can't just like do this in a heartbeat and they had to try to resurrect without starting from scratch this this cocoon again and so we did it twice and um that was that was terrifying for them but i remember thinking 
this is amazing. This is my first movie and I get these close-ups. It's going to be so great. And then I went in for looping after the whole thing was cut. And um, it's that scene. And they show me finding her. I lift up her head. She says, please, God, kill me. I'm yelling for my sergeant and I'm taking out my flamethrower and shooting her. And then it's a quick cut to a close-up of Sigourney. And she's reacting to what she sees on her monitor screen. And all the close-ups of me are gone. All you've ever seen of that, that, whole, that whole scene in my back. And you hear, and I'm voiceover, I'm saying, you know, we gotta get her out of here with compulsion, you know. And, and so I'm yelling that in, in the looping and I didn't, you know, there go my close-ups. And when I heard there was a director's cut, an extended director's cut, I held out hope that maybe I'd been added back in, but they used it to put the, um, the, the pre part of, you know, showing the colonists alive before the, before the infestation of aliens, which was great. That was, it was good to give that background, but I, you know, you win some, you lose some. That's really, I've never ever heard that story before. Oh that's yes. Really interesting. That's my party piece. <laughs> so aside from losing um, those close-ups, you know, do you remember what you, what it felt like when you actually saw the finished film come together? I was, I was spellbound as a moviegoer would be because I didn't, you know, because I shot in r- roughly a third of the film, um, and I think we were allowed to watch dailies. But then when I wasn't caught on call, if it's not my day to shoot, I'm not there and I'm not included in dailies. And so I didn't see other people's parts of the film. I didn't see Jeanette and Bill's touching death scene. I didn't see uh, the, op- the, the operations lab when they're, you know, making their last stand and the floor collapses. I, you know, I didn't... I didn't see any parts that I hadn't been in. So the whole thing was a revelation to me. It was thrilling. And you enjoyed it. Oh, absolutely. But I have to tell you, my parents went to the screening in their town. And um, as soon as I was grabbed by the alien, my dad turned to my mom and said, can we go now? (laughs) He's not a movie fan, by the way. (laughs) Just went to watch it for you. Yep. Did, um, Did you go to the premiere? I went to... To the English premiere, but I missed the the um, American one because I was doing two plays back to back in London when the American premiere was, which was before the one in the UK. And most of my buddies who were living in in London, you know, Jeanette, Mark, Bill, Al, uh, Rico, I think maybe Danny Cash. I don't know about Colette, but they all went to LA, and uh, and they were doing the rounds and having wonderful parties and stuff. And I was a bit envious, but I didn't want, you know, I keep my commitments. I'm not going to just bump out on a, on a play that I'm in. So I was doing the plays and then the English premiere was later and Jim and Gail came back for that. And they said, Cynthia, what are you doing here? Like Mark and Rico and Jeanette are all in LA. And I said, well, yeah, I mean, given that I had, you know, a reasonably small part and I'm given that I'm, doing these two plays and I can't get to LA until a month or two after the movie came out. Do you think it's worth my while? And they said, yes, come to LA and we'll introduce you to casting directors. And the way I make decisions in my life is that, listen up young folks, um, (laughs) when I'm 80, if I don't do this, will I always wonder what if? And the answer came back a resounding yes. You don't get, you know, newly hot young Hollywood director and producer offering to introduce the L.A. casting directors more than once in a lifetime. So I went to L.A. and uh, stayed with a friend and, and 
did the rounds of casting. And I, fortunately, my buddies were still there. So, so we sort of played the role of the young, um, young movie actors on the town. And we went to lunch on Sunset Boulevard and we went to, you know, some fun things and had, a, had ourselves a time. That was really nice. Yeah. Glad you did it then. Definitely. Did you ever follow the series after Aliens? Did you watch the other ones? I have to admit that I haven't because I felt the first two were so masterful. And I had, I had friends that are, you know, really into, well, especially the special effects guys. They went to see everything and they, you know, my, a lot of them were friends of mine. And, and they reported back that the other ones just didn't hold up. And, and I trusted their opinions. And, and I just thought, I don't want to be disappointed because it's such, you know, I, I thought... They're, to me, they're two extremely separate films. The Alien and Aliens are linked in concept, but they're so very different. And they're both masterpieces. And mm-hmm. I felt that, that Jim had really created a masterpiece and I, I didn't want to be disappointed after that. So when people come to cons and they say, which is your favorite and of all of them? And I say, well, I have to, I've only seen two. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I can't really answer your question yes. accurately. It's fair enough. I'm sure there's probably a fair few people who wish they'd uh, could say that, not experience the other ones. So speaking of cons, then you, you know you're you're pretty active on the um, on the convention scene, appearing alongside some of your alien uh, coast aliens co-stars quite frequently. Uh, oddly enough, it hasn't been that frequently because I was the missing alien. I was the missing sort of cast member for quite a few years because I had left LA and I had left acting and and I started a new life and I was discovered very late and um and sent to this agent that books the cons and and i didn't think there would be any call for me to go and the one of the first ones i did was dragon con in atlanta and i was sitting on a booth with people from star wars and someone you know a member of the royal shakespeare company and these wonderful other actors and on the very first day this group of people comes up to me and they're all dressed like me, my character in the film. And they said, Cynthia Scott, do you have any idea how long we've been waiting for you? <laughs> and I said, but, but here, this is the guy from Aliens. I mean, from, from Star Wars. And these, this is the guy from another Star Wars who's in the Royal Shakespeare Company and all these illustrious people are on this booth. And they said, no, no, we're here to see you. And they came every single day. And this was not long after um, 9-11 and when they, we still had a lot of uh, problems with flying. And they had, they actually had, they had made smart guns, these long articulated smart guns and I said how on earth did you get those on the plane and they said we didn't we drove down from Canada just to get your signature and a couple of guys had come from the UK to get my signature and I was so not off center and moved and touched that there was this second life of the film and people really cared about us it was very very moving but I didn't do that many at first it's um the last couple of years it's it's been um, you know about one a year but I, I hadn't I haven't really done that many the really gigantic one the best one was Comic Palooza in um, Houston two years ago because it was the largest assembly of cast members ever including Vancouver I mean it's largest ever almost everybody made it and I hadn't seen Sigourney I hadn't seen Paul Reiser I, I hadn't seen Paxton in a while I mean we I bumped in, into him a couple times in, in LA. We did traffic school together because we got moving violations. <laughs> where we but I hadn't seen, I hadn't seen Bill Hope in a long time since I'd left the UK. And uh, it was just so wonderful 
to see everybody again. And, and our crew, like the space troopers went out to dinner together a couple nights in a row and had a blast. And of course, that was almost the last time we saw Paxton. And, um, the only other time was um, also when I was in, in Houston, I, um, all my friends on the booth next to me are getting these text messages or emails from Jim Cameron's office, and they're all being invited to a special 30th anniversary private dinner at Comic-Con in San Diego. And I said, wait a minute, he must not have my email address, you know, <laughs> and, and I, I talked to my agent, he got right on it, and they were thrilled to find out, you know, how to get in touch with me. So I, I went to the dinner as well, and we had a fabulous private, very private dinner at Nobu in uh, San Diego during Comic-Con. And I got to meet everybody's kids, like Jim and Gail brought their daughter and Paul Reiser brought his son. And it was just, it was just really lots of fun. Uh-huh. And, and that's the last time that we were together with Paxton before he passed. And I'm grateful for those times. Yeah. It, it sounds like it's, you know, the, the film enjoys a really active sort of afterlife even now you know in terms of fandom and in terms of you guys getting together at events and stuff like that so it's 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 still still very much active and loved and you guys all are as well it's great it's very true and and we we say this to each other like when we're when we're going to do a con oh i wonder who's going you know because we can't wait to see each other and it's actually a happy event instead of i mean working on some films you like you know, it's like, I never want to be with that person again as long as I live, you know, there's some really horrible egos and acting out in, in that industry. And we all genuinely like each other. And it's fun to catch up with, because everybody has side projects. And it's like, so what are you up to? And how about your kids? It's, it's really fun. Uh, but we don't, uh, we don't all do cons together quite often. And in fact, this one that we just did recently, um, it was the only opportunity that people in this part of California had gotten to see any of us. And they were so, because, you know, people can't necessarily travel to the big cities and, and, um, they're, and the, the book, the, the person who runs the con specifically said, I want people that, that we haven't gotten to see. I, I want the, the people that don't do all the cons. So it was um, Rico and Carrie Han and her brother, Christopher and myself. And, and we have, you know, we have different stories to tell. And that makes that more interesting as well. Absolutely. Speaking of the sort of film's legacy then, and more specifically your legacy, I don't know if you're aware, but Dietrich's recently appeared in a couple of short stories in an Aliens anthology book called Bug Hunt. Oh Someone told me that, and I, I, how can I find this? Uh, it's on, it's on Amazon. It's, it's only last year that this book came out, so it's, it should be pretty easily accessible from any book place. Wow, I've got to look it up because they, they rarely get my li- my likeness correctly. I mean, maybe they're just reinventing me. But um, the only time it was, this is really funny. Um, right at the beginning, um, for the first few years after the film came out. Um, all these people were kind of clustering around and trying to get merchandise opportunities and said so they would make prototypes and pitch them to 20th Century Fox and try to get permission to make these these little things, you know, that would be sold at cons and whatever. And the, one of the first ones that was shown me was um, a, a tiny miniature kit of each one of us. It's like, a, you know, how you get a, an airplane kit or something and it's all taken apart and separate. Mm-hmm. Well, this was, I was all in pieces. It's like a little head and little arms and stuff that you would put together yourself and paint. And my head was literally an eighth of an inch tall. And darn it, it looked exactly like me. <laughs> it was extraordinary. And he gave me the little, the little prototype. And I still have it. I never put it together or anything. I, I like 
seeing it all in pieces. I was so impressed by that. And for the first few years, Fox would contact us for our permission to use our likeness because people wanted to put us in a like a video game or you know something, a, mm -hmm. a product, or I would have thought a book would need our permission too, but that hasn't happened in a long but time. So I, I guess all the either the copyrights belong to Fox or to Jim, or they don't even exist anymore. It just well, doesn't it, matter. It, it was a novel rather than um, than a comic, so it was all. I see. Yeah, it was all all words. Nope. Well, I'm so glad that they gave me life. That's that's very heartening mm. to hear. And there was also uh, it was pretty much love interest in both of them. Apparently, your character got around in uh, in the squad. You had a thing oh, with. Fabulous. You had a thing with um, Rico's character in one of them. Terrific! Oh, great! She got some action at last. <laughs> I'll, I'll take that broken-hearted cross off my off my away from my heart now. Oh, maybe maybe that came after the stories though. Actually, I'm happily married, so broken hearts no more. <laughs> well, good. Congratulations. Thank you. So we've we've heard some pretty cool stories around um, Aliens production. You know, blasting holes in the set, or the roof of the APC falling on Jim. Come on, but, us. Yeah, on on everybody. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was wondering, you know, other than than maybe what we've mentioned already, was there any other specific? Uh, vivid memories that you had uh, from your time on Aliens that always come back to you when you think about you know think about this period in your life. Oh, there were so many. Well, you asked if I had a regret or if there's anything shot uh, if I if there that's shot of me that um, were not included. And mm -hmm. one is the the scene when we're eating breakfast and the Octorian Puntang and the the knife on the hand and the you know the cornbread and stuff. And we were ad libbing and we were cutting up like like a crew would do you know marines together joshing each other around the breakfast table but some of us weren't mic'd so um i could see you know my mouth moving and nothing's coming out and that was a, a bit of you know because it, it really added like we were it was very naturalistic and i think it it could have been down mic'd it didn't have to you know you didn't have to be it wouldn't have drowned out the actual dialogue that was scripted but it would have added to the um the background ambience you know the the, the full um, feeling of, of what that scene was like. And that scene was lots of fun. Mm. And of course, as, as an artist, I'm always interested in every detail and the food that they were serving us looked like, looked like it was from outer space. They went to, I think they went to some oriental um, dim sum shops. And so it would be this translucent rice paper with shrimp showing through it. But they, you know, they'd find these jellied um, sweets and, and really strange looking things that looked like they were outer space food. And, and that, <laughs> You know, that's what we were, you go to the, they had like an automat thing on the, on the side of the set where you could go, you know, pick what you wanted. And, and, and they were really fun, weird looking food items. <laughs> I just, I loved all the detail. Mm -hmm. I, I really enjoyed the attention to detail. I think one of the reasons we shot at Pinewood is that the British art departments, I think, were the best in the world at that time. They may still be. They were phenomenal, and I've talked about this in the past, but when we were in the operations lab and you just sort of idly opened a drawer, in the drawer would be items that the columnists would have used. There'd be like a shopping list from the PX. That's brilliant. And, and it was, um, I mean, every single detail reinforced our performance. And, and the artist 
history of that is truly mind-blowing. That's half of the fun I find in watching the films again in different sort of environments, seeing them in the cinema, for example, when I grew up watching it on a small screen and being able to pick out like all these extra details that you might not necessarily have have noticed before. It really does give more to the film to say. And we've heard that a lot from fans and we've talked about it too, that people say, why do you think it has stood the test of time when so many science fiction films haven't? They look dated. And it's partially because Jim created a human film, a human interest film. We were real characters. We were really interacting with each other. You, as an audience, are interested in us and how we interact and who are we and, and how do we feel. Um, and that is that's that lasts through time. There will always be human interaction and groups of people who form together in life and death situations and bond. And that's one reason. And the other reason is that everything you see on the screen really existed in life. And that gives a verisimilitude that you you perceive as an audience. I perceive it, you know, they're not pretending that they're frightened in front of a green screen. I actually, when I do the sweep of the wall behind me and say maybe they don't show up on infrared at all, the alien is already there in the bar relief of that wall and the the audience sees and I don't see him emerge from that wall. I've just looked him in the face and not realized it because he's just part of the incrustation that's the wall. But all of that was made by human hands. It's, it's mind-blowing. It was huge. It was a massive, massive installation art project. And they left that up after they were done as well. Can you imagine? Oh, it was just walk- yeah, it was, it was all left in place because um, it's where they filmed Tim Burton's Batman after the oh, you guys have done it. So the Batman crew walk in and all this stuff's just up there. Can you imagine just walking into that when you don't know it's there or you're not filming on it? Wow, I didn't. I'm going to have to go watch that film now and see what I can recognize. But, you know, I just had another memory. You, you asked me what I did in the break. And, um, of course, as soon as we were casting Aliens, Jeanette and I had no problems getting agents. So um, my agent sent me out for Little Shop of Horrors, the, the remake that was done. That was doing next door, wasn't it? Yes, and I was cast in it, and it would it would have shot during my break. My part of it would have shot during the break, except um, yeah, it would have it would have neatly fit into the break. And and my agent said, "You can't do it because just in case aliens filming goes over a week mm. into the other film, then you're in breach of contract, and and you can't take that chance." That so I reluctantly. It would have been really cool to like do two movies at once as my first like right out of the box going hitting hard yes yeah that's awesome there's versatility folks <laughs> that that's actually all of my my questions i did have just a couple of specific ones from members of our community mm-hmm. um and then then we're then we're good so first off, uh, Wayland would just like to know, earlier on in the film, during your boot camp and during your preparations, did you receive any sort of special medical training since obviously Dietrich was the medic? I mean, I know that's not really playing to the film too much, but was that something that they prepared you with? That's a really good question, and I did not. And it turns out that I, I never was required to do, actually do anything medical because when um, when we shoot the, the scene with, with Newt when she's still dirty and, and I've examined her and I give a little report of her condition to the lieutenant. As the scene opens, I'm closing up my case. You know, like I've already done the examination. I'm actually mm-hmm. closing everything back up. So I never really had to look realistic taking blood pressure or, 
or temperature or anything. So I did not receive any medical training, but I was given some of the lines that have to do with quasi-scientific elements. Like when, um, when Hicks breaks off a piece of resin and he, and he goes, what is this stuff? Or, and I say, looks like some sort of secreted resin. And Apone says, don't, nobody touch nothing. Um, I mean, I, I, get the, I get the scientific line in that mm-hmm. interchange because I'm supposed to be a, a para-scientist, I guess. Mm-hmm. Although Bishop seemed to be much more scientific, scientifically aware than I was. He was doing all the dissection and stuff. He was too scared to go in the hive, though, so that was all up to you. Yeah, right. So um, you, you are front and centre during the film's only genuine chestburster sequence. I know we talked a little bit about you know grabbing her out the, uh, out the resin and whatever, but... Um, Another community member, and I'm sorry if I butcher this name because my pronunciation's terrible, uh, the Cruentus would like to know what it was like filming, you know, filming that chest burst. It was, um, I'm afraid to say, anticlimactic um, because I, I knew the stunt woman who was the cocooned woman, and um, she was also cast, if anyone remembers this film, there was a film, it was, I think the name of the film was Castaway. It's not the one that... Um, Tom Hanks was in. It was much earlier. It was a true story of a woman, a British woman who answered an advert. She was bored with her life and she answered an advert to go off with a, a, a bloke to a South Sea island and, you know, unoccupied island that she thought would be an adventure. And she ended up almost starving to death. And Barbara Coles um, was the double for Amanda Donahoe when she was, you know, losing weight because Barbara was very thin. And that's why mm. she was great as the cocooned woman. Um, so she was in place and I lift up her head and she speaks to me. And then they replace her with a dummy Barbara with an open chest and the, and the animatronic eel-like creature that pops out so you know it's step a and step b so i didn't see there was no transition for me to watch okay so uh, you weren't on there for the um you know the actual the special effects work then with that no not well i mean it, it was it was already it was it was out and moving around when i turned on the flamethrower uh, okay so you actually killed the um you actually killed the puppet then yes i think i did okay cool so yeah, like, like I said, that's that's everything from us. You know, I'd like to thank you just one last time for taking the time to come and talk to me today. Really appreciate it, and I've really enjoyed really enjoyed this. That's so, my we're... great pleasure. Oh, Brent. Oh, I no. would like to say that um, for anyone who hasn't been able to see us in person, and people say, "Oh, you know, why don't you come to Ireland? And why don't you come to France?" And, and you know, it's it's sort of like Kevin Costner with Field of Dreams. If you invite us, we will come. So you sort of have to um, lobby your your con people. I know there are several different ones, and um, find one that that would like to see us and book us. And that's, that's all... my little advertisement for the day. And that's all done through uh, Cool Water, was it? That's that's my agent, but um, Jeanette has a different one, and you know Rico and Carrie and Tim, uh, Christopher and I are with um, Cool Waters, and then. Um, Mark, I, I think Mark and Jeanette might be with the same one. There are a couple different agents that handle us, our bookings, but I'm, I think we're easy to find. Okay. And speaking of where to find you, um, for any of our listeners that are interested in you know, searching you out online, uh, do you want to tell folk where they can find you online? Yes, I will say um, my, I'm, I'm sadly behind catching up my website. I'm not bragging, but I've, I've had so many exhibitions the last two years that I haven't had time to upload the latest work, but I have my artwork on CynthiaScott2000.com. And you're on Twitter as well? I am. What's my handle? Um, Creativeist. That's okay. how most um, Aliens fans have found me. 
And I'll be sure to include links to uh, both your profile and the website on the uh, news post that goes up with this podcast as well. Oh, great. Just for those that just want to make it quicker (laughs) uh, rather than type it out. Well, thank you, everybody, for listening. I hope you've all enjoyed this episode. Be sure to uh, let us know what you think down below. Any questions for Cynthia, just hit me up and I might try and poke her, see if she's uh, got time to answer for you. As always, you can find us on the various socials. We're on Facebook as Alien vs. Predator Galaxy. We're on Twitter as AVP Galaxy. Uh, We're on YouTube now as well, so I'll probably also throw uh, this episode up on YouTube, either for or after. Depends how fancy I want to get with the, you know, with the visuals on it um and if you just like looking at pretty pictures we're on instagram as alien vs predator galaxy this has been aaron percival this is cynthia scott signing off